Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute, and today we're bringing you a conversation from our archive with Candace Millard, an author and historian whose books explore lesser-known stories about some famous historical figures. Candace is a warm and a compelling conversationalist. Please enjoy this conversation. And today we're deeply privileged to be joined by one of the really most interesting and compelling um, and impressive writers in America today, Candace Millard. Candace is a native of Ohio. Uh, she went to undergraduate uh, school at Baker University, which is in, outside of Kansas City, uh, has a graduate degree from Baylor, uh, is worked for several years uh, at National Geographic as a writer and editor, and we'll ask her about that. She's also the author of three really terrific books, uh, which I will, which are on my bookshelf and I will brandish. The first one is called The River of Doubt, which is about Teddy Roosevelt. We will talk about that. The second one is called Destiny of the Republic, about James Garfield. We will discuss that as well. And the most recent book is called Hero of the Empire by, uh, about Winston Churchill. And, uh, and in a, in a moment in his career that we don't really know very much about. So all three of them are really interesting characters. And, and Candace's work is characterized by rigorous research, great writing, and really compelling storytelling. So with that, Candace, we're delighted to have you with us today. Hi, John. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Well, Candace, I've seen you in a couple conferences talk about yourself growing up, and you, you referred to, I mentioned you grew up in Ohio as, as kind of a library kid, and you say some of your, your most delightful memories are going to the local library and grabbing a book and maybe on a nice sunny spring day going out and sitting out front and reading it. And so tell us about books and libraries, and also you, t you tell a wonderful story about the first book that you actually got. Tell us that story. So I was very lucky, you know, it's interesting um, working at National Geographic because I uh, worked with a lot of people who came from very different backgrounds from me and many of them went to Ivy League schools and, you know, sort of traveled the world and had exciting backgrounds. But I always say I would never trade my childhood with anyone. So as you say, I grew up in this little town in Ohio, it was largely working class town, um, three sisters, wonderful parents, just a quiet life. Um, and the center of it was the library. My parents were always very, very big readers. And just for fun, I mean, there was never this sense that, oh, you know, I, they never told us to read. It just, there were always books around our house because we always went to the library and we could walk there uh, from our house. And there's a little um, quick trip next to, I think it was like stop and go and we get some candy. <laughs> get our new book and there yeah it's a little um two-story brick building and I I still remember the smell of it and the creaky wood floors and the little children's um room in the front with the big windows um it's a huge huge part of my childhood and um so the story you're referring to was very very much shaped um my life as a writer and I think who I am and it was just one of these kind of things that happened. So one day I went to the library with my family. And when I walked in, um, there was a rack there of some books that they were giving away. And it was a, one of these vertical revolving racks. And um, they had the word free on front of it. So it was books that you could actually keep for yourself. And so I ran over and I asked my mom, you know, can I have one of these books? And she was like, sure. So I remember very vividly, I was maybe 10 years old, maybe 11. Um, turning this rack and looking at these books and they were 
um, adult, but there are books for adults. And um, I didn't know any of them, but there was one that caught my eye and it was called, I know why the cage bird sings. And I just liked the title. I had never heard of this book. I had never heard of Maya Angelou. I liked the title. I liked the picture on the cover. Um, so I pulled it out and I put it in my pocket. And um, when we started walking home, I started reading it. And, you know, I'm sure you've read that book. So many of us have. And it's just this extraordinary, extraordinary book. And even as a child, I connected with it in this um, very deep, visceral way. But I, I mean, there are a lot of things that I didn't understand in it and a lot of things that kind of scared me. Um, but, but for the first time, I realized that, that books could be more than just, you know, school books, more than just educational. Um, they can be more than just fun. Um, they could be, I mean, it was my first experience with literature. You know, they could be really profound and beautiful and they could transport you and just to somewhere you had never been. And it was this really extraordinary experience for me. Um, and again, it's not that I was like, oh, Maya Angelou, I want, and I had no idea who she was, but um, I still have that book um, to this day. And I'm 54 years old and I know exactly where it is in my bookcase at home. And it's um, still, um, you know, just uh, one of my treasured possessions. I've uh, I've seen you in a couple of conferences talk about saying at one point you had maybe thought about being an English professor, um, but you said that you you know as you maybe got more into the graduate work, the focus on literary criticism <laughs> criticism turned you off. It was like rather than just reading books for enjoyment, it was reading them to find flaws and so forth. Tell us about how that how that shifted. While you continue to love books, you're your sort of your interest in the kind of academic approach to English turned you off. Right. So growing up, I didn't know anyone who was a writer. It didn't honestly even occur to me that I could be a writer. So I thought, okay, I love to read. I love books. I'll be a librarian or I'll be a teacher. And then I, when I went to college, um, I actually, I got a, my degree in English education. So I thought I was going to be a high school teacher. Um, then I decided I'm, I want to, you know, uh, go on and I, my plan is to get a PhD in English and become a, a college professor, an English professor. And I, um, and I, I enjoyed my master's program, but like you said, the emphasis was on literary criticism at that time. And I think it still is. Um, my, my oldest daughter is a, a freshman in college this year, and she also loves to read and, um, loves to write, but I, um, you know, I was talking to her about, do you want to be an English major? <laughs> and I, I think she's going to major in anthropology because um, the emphasis, and it, it, this is not at all to criticize that, um, that theory, that thought, that, that approach to literature. I admire it. Um, but for me, it kind of takes some of the joy out of reading because I love reading so much and it's so much a part of my life. It, and it's not even just, um, you know, looking for flaws, but it's it's breaking it down and reading something into it that the author never intended. I mean, often you're you're discouraged from any um, when you're writing about this, there's any biographical details, any historical details to try to understand what was going on at the time when it was written, both in the larger world and in this writer's life. Um, it's It's purely the text and what you can kind of extract from it, um, not only not what the author intended, but they kind of discourage that. And 
obviously the kind of writing that I ended up doing, it's all about context. It's all about trying to understand what people were thinking, what was going on, why they made the decisions that they did and, and why it led where it led. So um, to me, I, I, I really didn't like it. And just me personally, it wasn't for me. And I didn't want to teach that way either. And I knew that it's a very, very competitive field. So there are a lot of brilliant, brilliant professors and the push to publish and everything. And I knew it was just not the publishing kind of publishing that I wanted to do. So I, I was in Texas. I moved back home to Kansas City, moved back in with my parents, didn't have a penny to my name, just trying to get a job. <laughs> well, speaking of jobs, I mean, the one job that you refer to a lot in your your talks is just National Geographic and how that shaped you in terms of your approach to, to research, to writing, to storytelling. Tell us about your time at National Geographic. So that was my dream job. Um, I, so I was, I was living in Kansas City. I was working for a trade journal um, company and I, um, I wanted, I was, I think, 27, 28 years old and I wanted to change my life, you know, do something big. And I didn't know how to make that happen. Um, but I had at that time, they had a 1-800 number for if there were any jobs at National Geographic. So this is, you know, 1995, <laughs> so a long time ago. So um, I would call this 1-800 number every day and there were never any jobs available. So I le later find out that really the human resources department at National Geographic is to keep people out, you know, because there's so many people who want a job there. And like so many things, it ends up being who you know, right? Somebody knows who's already working there. There's a job and they'll tell you and you'll tell somebody else. So what happened, I always laugh. It's um, the, the, my husband, who was then my boyfriend, it was, so it was my boyfriend's college roommate's twin brother's friend, <laughs> literally <laughs> told me about an opening at National Geographic. So I was actually thinking about joining the Peace Corps at that time. And this guy, the the college roommate's twin brother um, had spent a lot of time in the Peace Corps in Sierra Leone. And so he was like, look, the headquarters are here. Why don't you come take, you know, there was an opening in Madagascar. Why don't you come talk to them? This is a big change. Um, so I, um, I had no money. Again, I was making like $18,000 a year. I remember putting that on my credit card, you know, and, um, but I was like, I'm just going to take a, this investment in my future. And um, so when when I got to D.C., he was he said, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, I'd work at National Geographic, but I have no idea how to make that happen. He said, well, I have a friend who works in the education department there. So um, we had lunch with him who this Roger Herschel and his name was he passed away a few years ago, unfortunately, but wonderful, became one of my best friends. And he told me about a job in the and the TV division. And as a researcher, um, I wanted to be on the magazine, but TV was really interesting too. Obviously they're documentaries and it was a foot in the door, which is often all you need, you know? So I, amazingly, I got that job and moved to DC. Um, and I worked in that job for maybe eight months um, until there was an opening on the magazine uh, for something called a legends writer. And that's basically writing the captions for the stories, but it's hugely important because as we know, if we're honest, most people, when they read National Geographic, they look at the pictures, which are you know, world-class, right? And they read the legends, right? And sometimes they read the articles, but, um, but anyway, so they had a whole team of writers who did that and they had um, a test when they had an opening, they had a test and it was anonymous. 
Um, and that's one of the things I always say that's so great about writing. It's a meritocracy. It doesn't matter where you went to college. It doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter if you have money or not or what you look like. Can you write or not? That's all that matters. And so for this test, I mean, I was just a nobody in the research department over in TV. And I took this test. Um, 300 people took this test. They give you the article, the layout, and a few, couple of weeks to do your own research and write the captions. And I got the job. And uh, it was, I always say it was like my wedding, when I had my children and getting the job. <laughs> those are like the big highlights of my life. It was a very big day for me. Um, and I loved it. So I was there for another five years and I was an editor and then I would beg and beg and beg. And every once in a while, they would just to shut me up, they would let me um, go on assignment. So it was, it was amazing. Well, Candace, uh, let's maybe shift a little bit to kind of writing specifically. And I, I was looking at an article that you wrote, maybe it was about 10 years ago in the Post called The Writing Life. And I want to read a couple sentences and then just maybe have you play off it. You said, if I've learned anything about nonfiction writing, it is that the challenge is not in finding a great story to tell. More often than not, real life is so rich, complex, and unpredictable that it would seem completely implausible in the pages of a novel. The difficulty lies in understanding people that you're writing about, not their actions or even their thoughts, but their deepest character. It is not the famous events, the dramatic moments of public triumph that define them. It is when their lives are difficult, even desperate, that their true nature is revealed. Talk about how that perspective informs your writing as we, you know, we'll talk about Roosevelt, Garfield, and Churchill in a second, but that sense of, of character being defined by adversity. Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually just talking to a friend about this. I remember, so um, when I was working on my first book, um, The River of Doubt, and it's about this trip that Theodore Roosevelt took down this unmapped river in the Amazon and nearly died on this trip. And his son was with him. And it's really a miracle that any of them survived this expedition. Um, so I had been working on it for a number of years. I had gone to the river um, and it, I was obviously found it very, very stressful because I had never written a book, didn't know if I could pull it off. Um, so I was in the final proofs of that book um, and I was expecting my second child. Um, and I got a call one day. Uh, they had me they had seen something on a recent sonogram and I had to come back in um, for a more detailed sonogram. And they found a tumor in the, the, my baby in the fetus. Um, and mass. And I had to have her that day. And so, I, and my editor didn't even know that I was pregnant because I thought, I thought I still had a few weeks and I was like, it doesn't matter. I'll have the baby and I can get it all done. But I had to call him and say, I'm having a baby today. I need more time because, you know, it was the final proofs were due. So anyway, I had her and she um, had what's called neuroblastoma. She had um, stage four cancer and um, was born with it. And so I, my husband and I, our family, were just thrust into this world where we're terrified that she was given a 30% chance of survival. And so I'm, you know, I've just had a C-section. I have this baby in a different hospital. We're trying, you know, everybody's everywhere. Um, and I have to, I've got these proofs that I'm going through. And when I was reading through Roosevelt and all that he went through, I suddenly understood it in such a different way. You know, there's my newborn baby 
connected to all these beeping instruments and things. And, and all I want is for her to survive. And I realized, I just understood Roosevelt so much better, the decisions that he made, because all he wanted was for his son to survive this trip, you know? And so um, at one point, he, he nearly took his own life because he was so sick, he thought he would be a danger to the other men. And what the only reason he didn't is he realized the best way to save his son was to let his son save him. And his son was really the hero of this trip and really with his determination and his skills and his background um, and his strength got everyone out. And I had never really thought about it in that way. I thought of this book as, you know, uh, adventure and exploration and, um, and the science behind it, but I had never really, really thought about that human connection, that point at which someone is, as you said, someone's struggling and they're desperate and they're scared and, or with Garfield, they're dying. And that is when you truly see who they are. You truly understand uh, their character. And, um, and that's also where we can connect with them. That's why we can really, it doesn't matter how long ago they lived or how different their life was. We all understand that we've all had those emotions and that's where we can really um, connect and understand. And I, I, that's what I'm interested in. That's what I always want to try to find in any uh, book that I write. Well, in your book, there's a, a couple, I think, hallmarks of your writing. I mean, some really amazing central characters, as you say, in these kind of life and death struggles. But one thing I also like is I think the way you you d- develop secondary characters. And I want to read, I was I was going over again your Churchill book, and I, I came across a couple references to his mother. And I want to read them to you <laughs> and have you kind of play off of because they're just delightful that you say you're talking her name is uh, Jenny Churchill, and you you call her blindingly beautiful with thick black hair and porcelain skin. She was said to be part Native American. She moved with an, an assurance and sensuality that made her an irresistible force to nearly every man she met and a threat to every woman. Jenny was well aware not only of her beauty, but of the power it gave her. She used it as both a weapon and a wand, breaking hearts and enthralling anyone who caught her eye. And then you later quote her son saying, she shone for me like the evening star. I loved her dearly, but at a distance. Talk, talk either about Jen Churchill, who's an amazingly <laughs> interesting person, or even just the, the way you secondary characters can kind of shape your story and drive your narrative. Right. Secondary characters are hugely important. Um, for one uh, thing, they, they help you understand your central characters, right? You need their commentary about them and their interaction with the, so you can really understand whether it's, you know, Churchill's arrogance or his or his vulnerability or his brilliance or whatever it is his daring whatever it is you're trying to understand you can't just say it right you need to understand it within the context and there's nothing no one better than someone very close to that person and especially his mother who I remember um, meeting with someone in um, when I was doing the research in um, London uh, this this guy who was British and we were talking about Jenny and I said, yeah, she's a real piece of work. And he was like, oh, I love that American saying. I was like, oh, I, I didn't even know I was just American, but it fits her perfectly. I mean, she really was a piece of work. And, you know, she, I and I was torn about her because I um, I admired her to some degree, but she was very smart and very kind of courageous in her own way and doing her own thing. 
Um, but as a mother myself, um, it was difficult, you know, cause she, um, you know, she loved him and he loved her, but from a distance, you know, and he, again, I always say, you know, I wouldn't trade my childhood for anyone's. I certainly wouldn't trade it for Winston Churchill's because he, you know, was always thrown to these horrible, horrible boarding schools and he was alone. And all he wanted was to spend time with his parents. You know, he admired his father so much and, um, but his father never had time for him. You know, he's had this huge political career and his mother, he wanted to be with her, but she didn't have time either. She was always, you know, there were always social events and things. And he would write them the most wrenching letters saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm giving this presentation. Will you please, please come? And he would even like chart out the um, train schedules. You know, if you take this train and this train, then you can be back in London by this time and time for your party or whatever. And they just never came, you know, they never came. And she, um, and her, his father only paid attention when he thought he wasn't good enough, you know, and he would write him the, the cruelest letters. And his mother started to pay attention um, after his father died. And he started to become interesting in his own right, you know, about the time that this, this story takes place that I write about. So she became useful to him, um, helping him get assignments and things in the military because she knew everybody because all these men were in love with her. Um, but also, um, she was interested in him because he was now a more interesting, he was an adult, right? And he was writing and he was thinking and um, he was interesting to her. So um, yeah, it's a, it was a very, very interesting relationship that they had. Um, but you're right, those, those I always say you, you have to have great central characters, of course, but you really have to look about who's surrounding them and find out where their archives are, where their papers are. They will tell you so much more about the person you're trying to know. Well, central characters go Teddy Roosevelt is pretty good. Um, yeah. and, and the story you tell, he's just come off the 1912 uh, campaign in which he tried to return to the White House. He lost a crushing defeat. And as you say, he did what he often did when he suffered defeat, which was just get busy, take risks, go kind of go crazy. Right. So he embarks on this remarkable trip, a former president of the United States, going down this, basically this uncharted uh, river tributary of the Amazon. Tell the story and just what it was about it that just pulled you in so deeply. So I was working at National Geographic at the time and um, had gotten married and was actually um, expecting my first child and thought, you know, um, I should probably live with my husband at some point. That'd probably be a good idea. He was living in Kansas City. Uh, he had his own company. Um, he had been a um, foreign correspondent with the New York Times for years, but had left to start his own company in Kansas City. So anyway, I but and I, I love Kansas City. I wanted to move here, but I really love my job at National Geographic. I didn't know what I could do in Kansas City that I would love as much. And he's the one who said, you should write a book. And I thought, you know, much easier said than done. And um, anyway, so I just, I didn't know if I could do it, but I started to look for ideas. And um, I was having uh, lunch with a friend who wrote a book about the election of 1912. And he said, have you ever heard of this trip that Roosevelt took down this unmapped river in the Amazon? And I'll never forget, because I had read a couple of biographies about Roosevelt, but every book, um, most biographies, just they give you maybe a few paragraphs about it because it's after his active political career. So there just really wasn't that much interest in it. Um, um, but I remember this friend of mine, James Chase, um, reading a passage about this trip. And he said, and the river is called the River of Doubt. There's your title. 
And um, so uh, I went back to work. National Geographic has obviously a wonderful library. And I just started doing a little research and I was like, oh my God, you know, this trip is incredible. So it's this, this, uh, this river that's nearly a thousand miles long and it's a central tributary, uh, central tributary, the Amazon River. And it was on, on any map of the world. And, and a man died there and another man was murdered and Roosevelt nearly took his own life. It's just incredible. And I can write about the Amazon and I can write about evolution and all of these things that I'd been steeping myself in at National Geographic. So um, anyway, it, it sold pretty quickly, but um, so the, uh, the idea, yeah. So Roosevelt, here he is, he's, um, he had been president, uh, you know, a, a partial term when McKinley was killed and then he had won in his own right. And he said, I'm not gonna run again. And he went to Africa on this big, um, exploring this big natural history expedition. Um, and he gets back and he's really unhappy with what's going on in the White House. And so he decides to run himself. But of course, what he does is he splits the Republican Party and he puts Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat, in the White House for the first time in 16 years. And everybody's furious with him. So um, so he, like you said, every time he came against um, you know, he when he lost his father or when his his mother and his wife died on the same night, all these difficult, um, unimaginable tragedies that happened in his life. He always threw himself into something really difficult and physically strenuous and dangerous to try to forget. And so he's a pariah for the first time in his life. He's not used to losing. He's given this opportunity to go on a speaking tour to South America he gets there and they say, well, you can, you know, kind of go on a natural history trip while you're here. Or we found the headwaters of this river and nobody knows where it goes. You could do that. And I mean, it's it's Theodore Roosevelt. He's not going to say no to that. Right. Even though he's completely unprepared, completely unprepared. So anyway, it's um, it's just this unbelievable journey. And to think, I mean, he came very, very close to dying in the Amazon. Well, and one of the the kind of central tensions of your book is between he has he's sharing the leadership of this of this voyage with a Brazilian explorer, Claudio mm-hmm. um, Rondon. Uh, Rondon, and mm-hmm. Rondon wants to take his time and map the river and, and do this <laughs> right. in a very methodical scientific right, right. way. And Roosevelt wants to get down there. It's mm-hmm. like anyone who's been on a family vacation, which people have. <laughs> two different agendas can kind of appreciate just sort of the tension that just kind of jumps out of your pages is right. Cause Roosevelt, they're, they're running out of provisions. He's feeling horrible. It's raining. Bugs are everywhere. He just they, wants to They're losing, done. right. They're losing canoe after canoe and these unbelievable rapids. You know, you think about the Amazon river is very wide and, um, and quiet, but this is one of these rivers that's coming down in the highlands and it's, fast and twisting and full of rapids. And they're on, they're in basically hauled out tree trunks because of course they got there without any boats. Um, and yeah, and they have the Cinta Larga are, you know, attacking. And so it's unbelievably dangerous. And yeah, several men died on the trip. And yeah, he just, he's like, let's just get there, find out where it goes, and we can put it on the map. But Rondon, as you say, had spent his life mapping and trying to understand the Amazon and stringing a telegraph line through it. Yeah. And he was very methodical. Um, but he, so he insisted and he took all these coordinates and he, they were very precise. So when I went there um, to see this river, I, I had a GPS, right. And I could dial up these coordinates and I could see exactly where everything happened. Um, they're very, very precise. He was right. 
Well, when you did the research trip, I mean, what was that like? In your, your notes, you acknowledge a guide who you said did, you know, remarkable help in getting you through it. I mean, was it, I mean, it must have just given you a really tangible sense of, le- of what, what the challenge you faced was. Yeah, I mean, I always say the research is my favorite part of the of this job. It's so much fun, and I'm so lucky that I'm able to do it. Um, so, so getting to this river was very hard because um, most of it is in protected um, indigenous territory, the Cinta Larga, and you're supposed to, in theory, be able to go through and like get their permission. But there's no way. I talked to the New York Times um, bureau chief there and he was like I've even I've tried it it just doesn't happen they don't but I was able to find a little fishing village um, on the banks um, kind of uh, farther north um, but on the banks of this river and that's in just general Brazilian territory and um, there's <laughs> this little I say fishing village it's really just a camp so they um, as you might imagine those waters are very pristine and this guy was hoping to attract um, fishermen who like loved, like the, the piranhas were literally this big in this, <laughs> this river. So um, I was able to stay there and um, go up and down the river from there and also fly over the whole thing. But I mean, it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous um, place still today. You know, we, we worry about losing the Amazon and we should, I mean, and we are losing so much of it and it's a real problem, but when you're there and when you're flying over it, I mean, it's just so vast and so dense and so breathtakingly beautiful. But in some ways, you know, the Amazon protects itself. So we were, one day we had just hired this little plane and um, we had an inexperienced pilot for a series of reasons. We lost our more experienced pilot. We got this more inexperienced. We had been in a rubber tapping village and, um, you know, it's a rain it's a, it's a rainforest it was burning in the rainy season. So there's a lot of moisture in the air. And we got back to the plane. He didn't um, sump the water out of the tank. So um, we got in, we're flying, you know, those little planes are, they're very noisy and stuff. We're about 1500 feet up and the single engine went out because the water got into the engine and we just started falling. And I remember thinking, if we crash, I hope we die because they will never find us. They will never find us. You know, we were just in the middle of nowhere. And amazingly, I mean, I, you know, you hear about people being able to restart an engine in flight. I'd never seen it happen. And he did. I mean, this, it was a young guy, the pilot, and he was clawing, clawing at the controls and he got it started and we um, went on our way. But, um, not long after that, maybe just a couple of months, a couple of freelance photographers for National Geographic were killed in a plane crash over the Rio Negro. So, um, yeah, it happens. But it was an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. And like you said, I mean, there are so many things that you can't understand unless you go to these places. For instance, so you think, OK, here's Theodore Roosevelt. He's been hunting his entire life. Here's Run Don. He spent his whole life in the Amazon. And this is the richest eco- ecosystem on earth. Why are they starving? Why are, why are they starving? And you go there and it's silent. It's really silent. And you, you can't see anything that you can eat. I mean, they're like a few monkeys way, way, way in the canopy, maybe some caiman kind of disappearing into the river. Everything's eating you. <laughs> you're just eating alive. 
but anything you can eat, I mean, it's evolution. They're just really, really good at either, you know, being a predator or not being prey, both of which involves hiding. Well, a very different person that you chronicled is James Garfield. In fact, you've done probably more than anyone to revive interest in James Garfield. Tell us why he's such a remarkable person. So he was one of these stories. Yeah, I think my editor was shocked when I told him I wanted to write about uh, James Garfield after this trip. With I think they're expecting another like adventure, and he's like, um, "Okay, you know." But I fell in love with him. So I was I wanted another book with a lot of science in it. So I was actually researching Alexander Graham Bell, and um, I just came upon this um, story of him um, trying to save Garfield after Garfield was shot. And um, I was surprised that I had never heard, I was like, Alexander Graham Bell was trying to save the president, one of our only four presidents who had been assassinated. How do I not know this? And also like, why did, why did Bell do that? I mean, Bell was young. He was like, had some money for the first time. He was famous. He, he had all these ideas and he dropped everything to try to help Garfield. So I thought, I wonder what Garfield was like, because like most Americans, unfortunately, all I knew about him was that he had been assassinated. And I think most of us think, oh, he's just this bearded, gilded age president, you know, nothing, not interesting, too bad he died. Um, so I started researching him and I was like blown away. You know, he was absolutely brilliant. So he was our last president to be born in a log cabin. His father died before he was two years old. He didn't have shoes in Ohio until he was four. His mother and his brother um, saved and saved and saved so that he could go to school because they knew he was so smart. And so he went to this small school, Hiram, in um, Ohio. But he was so brilliant that by his sophomore year, while he was still a student, he was a sophomore in college, they made him a professor of literature, mathematics, and ancient languages. <laughs> he knew the entire Aeneid by heart in Latin. Uh, when he was in Congress, he wrote an original proof of the Pythagorean theorem. And I always say he, he had a heart to match his mind. So he, he um, was a, a fierce abolitionist. He hid a runaway slave. Uh, he, he, his speech on behalf of black suffrage on the floor of Congress will break your heart. And, and, it, and it was central to bringing about black suffrage. He was a hero in the civil war for the Union Army. So he was just absolutely brilliant and brave and he didn't want to be president. He was thrust into this role. So when he became president, he had this power that, that I don't think any other president has had because he didn't owe anyone anything. You know, he had kind of sold the soul along the way. He was like, all right, I'll do this, but I'm going to do it my way. Well, yeah. And you tell also the story, I mean, of, of, his, of his assassination, his shooting and the fact that he was shot seriously, but right. um, the, the doctors, uh, you know, a team of doctors, maybe a little bit of turf war going on, basically infected him seriously. And, and as you write, you know, had they just even left him alone, he probably would have lived. Yeah. You know, modern science would have you had him out in within weeks. Um, mm -hmm. But you also chronicle as he is dying and wasting away that he still conducted himself with enormous dignity and decency and kindness. And it was just mm -hmm. almost an example of what you had said earlier about revealing character through adversity. Right. And he's, he said, and I'd always, this phrase has always stayed with me because it, it, it perfectly um, summarizes what I'm trying to say about what you see in a person. He said it's, when, and he was talking about when someone is ill, he said it's the bed of the sea. 
you, everything else is stripped away and you see the bed of the sea, you see who this person is. And everybody who knew and loved him said he was his, his purest self. He was, you know, here he was dying and, and suffering. Um, I mean, his body was riddled with infection. You know, he, he lost half of his body weight. He, I mean, the, the death mask that they have at his home in Ohio will break your heart. And he was so concerned about everyone else, not just his family, but about his friends and so grateful for all that they were doing to try to save him or even just to make him comfortable. Yeah. Well, the, the, the third character let's talk about for a few minutes is Winston Churchill. And of course, well known, but you pick him up at a point in his life that maybe many of us don't know that much about. He's 24, you know, uh, full of aspiration, trying to find a way to make it in the world. Uh, it looks at the military and then ends up going to the Boer War as a as a, a, a war correspondent. Is captured, becomes a POW. Pick it up from there. So he's um, yeah he's an escort in um, South Africa and just dying to get in the war because he he called military um, military success military medals the glittering gateway to distinction because he thought that's how I'm going to distinguish myself and that's how I'm going to win the next election because he had already run for parliament and lost so he's he's desperate to find a way to have this path to power right and um, to, to distinguish himself. So um, he's on this armored train and he's the, he's the only civilian on it. And like you said, he's 24 years old and it's attacked by these boars and men are dying, you know, arms being shot off right and left. And Winston Churchill, this kid who, again, he's at this point is not even in the military. He immediately takes command and starts shouting orders. You do this. And, and it's like the audacity. But what's even inc more incredible is that people listen. These these soldiers, these officers listened to him and they did what he asked. And, and those who made it out alive credited him. They said it was because of Winston Churchill because he kept his head and he had such confidence and he knew what to do. And I always say that's, you know, that's what was so interesting about him, his leadership, because it was his confidence was contagious. You know, he's like, I know I can do it. And you know, you can do it too. And if when he tells you, you can do it, you believe it. And obviously that comes into play in a major way 40 years later with World War II. But um, so he's put into this, he's captured though. He's put into this POW camp in Pretoria and um, he escapes by himself. He makes it across almost 300 miles of enemy territory without a map, a compass, food, a weapon. He didn't speak the language. I mean, it's extraordinary. And with the Boers who are furious because he was famous because his father was famous. So they were really proud of themselves for having captured him. And then he humiliates them. So they are searching high and low for him and will probably kill him if they find him. But he amazingly makes it out to um, what's now Mozambique, was in Portuguese East Africa and becomes this huge hero and just turns it around very quickly, runs for parliament again and wins. And that was the launching pad for Winston Churchill's political career. But as you tell me, you know, there's a, an aspect of Churchill that we sort of know, which is self-promotion and boasting and that sort of thing. But there was also, I mean, in, in this, this episode, I mean, you see kind of the toughness, the resilience, the humor, uh, the lock too. But, but I, I was struck by something, a, a note that you referred to that he wrote to his mother in describing himself. And he says, I know myself pretty well and I'm not blind to the tawdry and dismal side of my character. 
But if there's one situation in which I do not feel ashamed of myself, it is in the field. I mean, as you say, he had this sense of of confidence in his ability to navigate the world, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. He used to say, I have faith in my star. And he certainly did, you know, but he, and that's why I say, I'm obviously a flawed person and, but, and who isn't right. But obviously had his flaws and the, you see those very clearly, definitely his arrogance um, very early on, but he could laugh at himself. He knew it and he was laughing. He was kind of irresistible and people would be like, that kid gets on my last nerve. You know, but he's going to be prime minister one day. People said that again and again and again. Um, and yeah, absolutely. The the determination, the resilience, the resourcefulness. The, I mean, he was, and people think of him as an old man sending young men into war. But he, by that point, when he was 24 years old, that was his fourth war on three different continents. And he had already written three books. I mean, he was, you know, it just um, incredibly prolific, but also incredibly personally brave. And you say as, as he gets through and he, he survives, the first thing he does is join the army and goes back and almost right. incredibly helps rescue the POW camp right. that he had been detained in. Right, 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 right. He frees that same POW camp. And, you know, I was in that building when I was talking about research, when I went um, to do research for this book and I went to Victoria and that building is now a public library. You can go in, but it's really cool because the um, room where Churchill stayed, there's a trap door in the floor where they had thought about digging their way out. You can, I was standing in that trap door and they have on the wall, it was an officer's prison and all these officers were highly trained cartographers. And they had they had drawn a map of the war on the wall and it's still there. It's kind of covered in plexiglass. But um, I went to where he was captured. Um, I, the, the British consulate in um, Mozambique is still there. Um, I went to where he hid along the way when he was um, escaping. He hid in um, at a colliery in a, in a coal mine shaft with these white rats for three days. And the colliery is gone, but the, the shaft is still there. And, and it's unfortunately there's a fire that's been going on for many years that they can't put out well yeah and i, I won't spoil it for our readers who i i won't encourage to 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 really pick up your book today but but a, a, a critical part of the story takes place in a mine and it's you you're you're very very evocative and I, it's funny because i was looking at your notes uh, and you you wrote this you said um i would also like to thank the mining historian jay davenport who helped me research by uh, who helped my research into south african mines and whose carefully researched and fascinating book, Digging Deep, was excellent resource for me. I'm imagining when you started this, you were not saying, oh, I really want to learn about minds. As you get pulled in this story, it's like this is an essential thing to understand how right. he survived. Right, right. And it wasn't just her. I mean, she, she was wonderful. But also, I met this incredible guy there. John Bird was his name. And he had spent his career... Um, um, managing coal mines in the same part of South Africa. And he had been fascinated with the Churchill story and had done a lot of his own research. And he was uh, just a wonderful resource, but he also connected me with other people. So I wanted to understand what was it like for Churchill down there. And I was picturing sort of cramped and dark and kind of sterile, but no, it, it the passages are really wide because they had ponies down there, these poor ponies they would put down there for weeks and so it smelled like pony down there too, you know? So that's so like, you can really, or just at least better, I hope the reader could better understand exactly what it was like for him being down there in that pitch blackness, you know, with these rats scurrying around. 
Candace, as, as we wind down, I know, you know we have students here who are interested in reading. And as I've heard you talk and, and, and read some of your essays, I mean, a couple of messages that you seem to convey a lot is that really encouraging people to sort of pursue the stories that are interesting to them. I mean, even yeah. if maybe others don't think so, but if, if this is what's interesting to you, plunge into it. And also take the time to do it right. And I know you right. have said, you know, there are deadlines. And of course, in the academic world, you have to respect them. But particularly when you're writing a book, I mean, you want this book to endure. So if you miss a deadline by a couple months, your editor's not going to love you for it. But when you look at the book 10 years later, you're going to feel pretty good about it. Absolutely. You know, I'm a rule follower. So it's always very, very stressful. I always want to make deadline, but I always keep in mind and everyone should keep in mind no one's going to remember if you turn it on on time, they're going to remember if it was good or not. <laughs> so if you can make it better by being a couple of months late, or I'm always a year late, to be honest, I don't recommend that But for each book. It's at least a year late. God bless my editor. But what matters is if it's good or not. And it takes time, you know, spend time, first of all, on the idea. Yeah, it has to be something you love, but it has to have a ton of primary research material and all those peripheral stories and characters that we were talking about, a ton, a ton of primary source material. Um, but something that you're not going to mind, it takes me four or five, six years to write a book. And I have never resented a moment of it because I've found these stories fascinating all the way through and have learned so much that I knew starting out because I put a lot of research in ahead of time. I knew that I was going to love working on it. Candace, final, final question. If you were to take us a, a trip, say, from Kansas City to Carbondale for a book event, you have a new book, so we'd love to have you come. Thank but you. If, you, if you could choose your traveling companion and your choices were Churchill, Roosevelt, and James Garfield, who would you choose? You know, I would choose Winston Churchill just because I think he'd be funny. You know, <laughs> I think he'd be deeply entertaining and he would have so many great stories. I always say Garfield has my heart. And I think, uh, you know, Roosevelt was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. But, um, but Winston Churchill makes me laugh. I would really enjoy him. <laughs> yes, that's great. Well, Candace, thank you so much for your time. We really do appreciate it. I know you've just finished a book and we are eager for that to come out. And when it does come out and if you're doing a book tour, we'd love to invite you to Carbondale and meet with students and faculty and, and talk about your new book to the community here. I would love to do that. Thank you so much, John. I really, really enjoyed the, the conversation. I Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.